Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining us once again for the conversation, glad to welcome back Head of Fixed Income for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Tom McLaughlin. Uh, Tom, thank you for dropping by, spending some time today with our listeners, our clients. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Dan, it's always a pleasure to be with you and I'm looking forward to the conversation. You're joining us to talk about the launch of the Chief Investment Office's Election Watch publication series this for the 2024 election cycle. Uh, Before we get into the publication, provide some background there, do have to acknowledge this week's extraordinary activity up on Capitol Hill. Can you bring us up to speed on what has taken place within the House of Representatives? Yeah, sure thing, Dan. I'll try. Uh, It's certainly been a chaotic situation. We have to begin with a kind of recognition that a vote to unseat the Speaker of the House is unprecedented in American history. There have been other instances where a Speaker has lost the confidence of some members of his caucus and chosen to resign the position before a motion to vacate the chair was laid on the table. But a roll call vote to do so was nothing short of stunning. You know, the trigger for the motion uh, to vacate the chair um, from a rump caucus of Republicans unhappy with McCarthy's leadership was the former Speaker's decision to put a bipartisan vote on the floor to pass a continuing resolution to keep the government running for another 45 days, which was done this past weekend. Uh, the CR, or continuing resolution, also provided for incremental funding for disaster relief for areas of the country that have sustained damage, like Hawaii and Florida. McCarthy had removed provisions for incremental border funding and military aid to Ukraine, as those two issues among were viewed as too contentious to include in that CR. So now we're left with gauging the impact on policy of McCarthy's departure. First and most importantly, the net effect, I think, is a higher probability of a government shutdown at the close of business on November 17th, because Republicans in the House will need another week from today to choose a new speaker which leaves little time to negotiate an agreement that can pass muster in the House with near-unanimous support among Republicans and then be acceptable to the Senate and finally, you know, uh, find agreement with President Biden, who has to sign the legislation. So any successor to McCarthy, whether it's Majority Leader Scalise or another candidate, will enjoy, I think, a brief grace period uh, from the Freedom Caucus uh, within the Republican conference. But still will be highly constrained in his or her ability to negotiate terms with the Senate. You know, second, you know, while we didn't anticipate that much was going to be accomplished before the budget, um, in the budget before the end of this Congress, with the election looming next year, this week's events make the prospects for enactment of material legislation much more problematic. Um, most work in legislative committees, for example, were suspended this week. Now, the rational rationale, I should say, for Representative Gates to put a motion on the table uh, to remove the Speaker may simply be an effort to raise his personal profile just enough to make a run for governor in Florida in 2026, which I suspect may be on his agenda. Um, It's something that um, he may want to pursue because right now he's actually not the most popular person within the Republican conference. You know, a couple of quick final notes based on questions we've already received uh, since the vote. Uh, to uh, vacate the chair. First, uh, Representative McHenry of North Carolina will serve as the interim speaker for now, but it's worth noting that his duties are limited. 
So he's empowered to convene the House into session, to adjourn the House out of session. Uh, he's certainly going to oversee the voting for the new speaker when the candidates are presented. Uh, but he has taken himself out of the running for the, for the position of speaker. Now, if uh, Representative Scalise of Louisiana is unsuccessful because he, he has expressed an interest in running for the role, um, McHenry might be a consensus pick in a matter that is similar to what Paul Ryan experienced when he was the consensus pick after former Speaker Boehner uh, resigned uh, the speakership. Uh, McHenry is also, by the way, not in the presidential line of succession because he was not elected a speaker by the entire House of Representatives, and that was a question that we also received this morning. So uh, this is this is going to be a particularly uh, challenging uh, five remaining weeks or so um, before we get to the next deadline uh, in the middle of November. And I am uh, a little bit um, skeptical, I guess is the best word, that they will basically be able to get to a point where they can strike a, a bipartisan deal with the Senate, which it has to be more or less because recall that the Democrats are uh, controlling uh, the Senate floor calendar at this point. Uh, so whether or not they can, they can achieve that, I certainly hope they can, but I think they're the, uh, the possibility of, uh, of a shutdown uh, in November it has just risen as a consequence of what happened this week. Well, Tom, thank you for the clarity around this complex situation. A lot of moving parts. It will be an interesting few weeks ahead, and I'm sure we'll have some follow-up conversations with yourself as well as our colleagues from the UBS-US Office of Public Policy. So thank you for the update on what's taking place up on Capitol Hill. So do you want to pivot over to the Election Watch publication series? It's hard to believe, though, we are quickly entering into yet another presidential election cycle. To coincide with this, the UBS Chief Investment Office recently launched the Election Watch publication series for 2024. Now, this series of publications will keep us informed on the progression of the 2024 election cycle over the next year. So what can readers expect, Tom? Well, as you know, Dan, uh, we've published an Election Watch series every two years for at least the past decade. Interest in the series is always a bit higher in presidential election years, so we would anticipate publishing at least three more detailed reports between now and the election in November of 24, as well as a variety of ad hoc policy briefs as necessary based on campaign developments. You know, the current presidential campaign is shaping up to be particularly acrimonious. The two leading candidates, incumbent President Joe Biden, former President Donald Trump, both sport very low approval, public approval ratings, uh, but they uh, at this point obviously hold a commanding position in each of their parties for the nomination. But remember, the control of Congress is also on the agenda. Democrats and Republicans uh, hold the slimmest of margins in the Senate and the House, respectively. Uh, the GOP is actually well positioned to retake control of the Senate because Republicans are only defending uh, 10 seats, uh, 11 seats, actually, I guess, with a special election in Nebraska, while the Democrats and independents who caucus with the Democrats are, have, are defending 23. So in this particular cycle, uh, it, it favors uh, the Republicans. Uh, control of the House, however, is a toss-up at this point, and much will depend on how the economy performs over the course of the next 12 months. So there's a lot at stake with respect to both the executive and legislative branches of government. As it stands today, Tom, just looking at the presidential field of candidates, what does the makeup consist of today with respect to both the GOP as well as Democrats? 
So on the Democratic side, it's no surprise um, that President Biden is facing only modest challenges to his renomination. Sitting presidents uh, generally, uh, well, it has happened quite a few times in the past, um, thinking of 1980, for example, when President Carter had to defend his nomination against Senator Ted Kennedy. But by and large, incumbent presidents uh, tend to be renominated without much difficulty, provided his health is satisfactory. Uh, that'll be the case for President Biden. Uh, President, former President Trump is leading the GOP field by a very wide margin. Uh, he faces uh, numerous competitors, as we saw in the uh, two debates, uh, but they're dividing the share of Republicans who would prefer a different candidate other than the former president. So uh, unless opponents to Trump settle on a leading candidate, a divided field will be unable to counter uh, the former president's solid base of support within the party. Now, the former president also faces myriad legal issues, uh, which could play a role in whether he gets the nomination uh, next summer, but it's really too soon to tell whether it will be as big an impact on him as it would be on most other candidates. As far as milestones go, I would um, point out um, that obviously we should focus on the Iowa caucuses and early primaries, but Iowa has a very poor record of picking the eventual nominee, particularly among Republicans. In fact, they rarely do. But it's still important, that is the Iowa caucus, from the perspective of learning whether any candidate performs better than expected and get some momentum. So you might see a dark horse candidate um, win or come in a close second in, in Iowa, in which case they'll uh, be able to try to move ahead with some momentum. Now, New Hampshire is more interesting than Iowa in many cases because it's a state where a strong performance might indicate an ability to draw independent voters in a general election. And then, of course, there's South Carolina, where both a native son and a native daughter, that is Senator Scott and Governor Haley, are both vying for votes. Um, so I, I would suggest that, again, you know, I keep saying this, but it is still a bit early. Um, it looks like uh, the sitting president, uh, provided his health is fine, is going to remain the Democratic nominee. Uh, former President Trump is still in the lead. It's a commanding lead. Uh, and it would take either a, a great deal more momentum from the challenger, one of the challengers or some uh, serious um, additional legal problems that he's already dealing with right now to dislodge his position. Well, thank you, Tom, for that backdrop and those milestones you cited will be here before we know it. Now, as far as issues, policies that resonate with the American voter within the publication are cited a variety of policy priorities and focus categorized by sector. Are there any in particular, Tom, that you would like to highlight for our listeners today? Yeah, I think so, Dan. Uh, as the election campaign moves into calendar year 2024, we can expect the expiring personal tax provisions to be the principal focus of the campaign. Uh, you know, listeners to this podcast will remember that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 had some tax cuts built into it that expire at the end of 2025. Now, this was done to accommodate uh, arcane Senate rules that allow uh, tax bills to pass on a simple majority vote in budget reconciliation, provided that it doesn't raise the size of the deficit beyond 20, beyond 10 years. So tax bills in the Senate uh, often are structured with temporary provisions that the sponsors hope to remain permanent, but technically expire in a few years. Uh, and this was done with the reduction in the maximum marginal income tax rate for individuals from 39.6 to 37%, for example. 
So we're definitely going to have a tax bill in 2025 after the presidential and congressional election. And I would expect the GOP to focus on making those 2017 tax cuts permanent if they control Congress and the White House. If Democrats control both branches, then some of those tax cuts will either revert to their higher rates, which existed prior to 2018, or otherwise be targets targeted to less affluent taxpayers. In other words, extend them, but basically make them more focused. You know, the other question I receive quite often is whether the restrictions on state and local tax deductions will be made permanent. I'm inclined to believe that the cap, uh, $10,000 where it is today, will persist, but it could be raised. That is, the cap could go to a higher rate or a higher level. Many Republicans believe that the tax, uh, the cap, serves a, a purpose because they view an unlimited deduction as a federal subsidy for coastal blue states with higher tax rates. Meanwhile, Democrats point out that an unrestricted cap represents a tax break for the most affluent taxpayers. In other words, it skews to the wealthy. So this is one of those rare instances of bipartisan opposition to a, a form of tax break. So in a nutshell, I think the, um, the SALT restriction, the cap, persists, but at a, at a higher level. Maybe it goes to 15, maybe it goes to 20. It probably doesn't go back to an unlimited amount. But, but the bottom line is that that's just one example. We will have, during the course of the campaign, a lot of discussions about taxes and the Internal Revenue Code, and those will have to be addressed after the election in 2025. Tom, thank you for those highlights. And, of course, I will point our listeners, our clients, to the publication to look at the full list of policy priorities, many of which I'm sure Tom will talk about in follow-up conversations. Now, as we know from prior election cycles, a lot of twists, turns, a lot of headline noise. So for investors, Tom, what kind of guidance can you offer in terms of how to navigate the 2024 election cycle? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, when we were thinking about how to draft um, this inaugural edition of the 24 Election Watch, um, we kind of figured we had to basically set the table in terms of uh, helping clients deal with the um, fact that the campaign is starting early, it's likely to be very acrimonious. So we came up with four tips, um, beginning with the first one, which is a reminder to everyone that's still early. A lot can happen between now and the first caucus and the first primaries, much less the election. Uh, so we need to uh, pace ourselves a bit and understand this is kind of a marathon uh, and not to get too concerned about some of the machinations that, are under, that, are, that will be happening here between now and the end of the year. Second, uh, beware the reference to national polls and the results of those national polls. At this point, they are pretty close to meaningless. Uh, national polls are not particularly enlightening because we don't elect presidents on the basis of a popular vote. Uh, so a Democrat running up the margin in a blue state or a Republican doing the same in a red state is far less meaningful than on election day winning a swing state. So it's worthwhile paying attention to the polls in the seven or eight states that could pivot from one party to the other. Uh, those state-by-state -state polls tend to come out a little bit later, so you'll see more of them after the first of the year. But I wouldn't get too worked up about uh, national polls just yet, again, because um, it, it tends to be skewed by results in states that are really not competitive. Uh, third, um, and this one is critical, uh, understand your own partisan bias. Um, most of um, most of us have them, and they can be dangerous for from an investment perspective. America is very resilient. 
And if your favorite candidate is not elected, it's important to keep that in mind, um, that your portfolio construction is more important to look at from a long-term perspective. There's academic research, ample academic research, actually, that investors, for example, who preferred Obama in 2008 did a bit better in the market than those who favored McCain because they were more optimistic and the market ended up performing well. The same thing happened, flipping the script, in 2016 when Republicans generally, those who identified as Republicans, generally did better in the market after Trump was elected because they were probably a bit more optimistic. The key takeaway is that if you abruptly reverse change or adjust your risk tolerance in response to politics, you run the risk that your long-term portfolio objectives get distorted and you could end up on the losing end. And finally, please take the acrimony in stride. We've had some elections where the diatribes from one candidate to another were particularly vindictive. And this, too, comes in a cycle over two centuries. Um, in the report, we used the um, contest between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson as an example, and that was one of the more vicious campaigns, and that was between two of America's founding fathers. Uh, those two individuals ultimately reconciled in the end, so there's hope for all of us. But anticipate that this is going to be a particularly tough campaign from the perspective of charges being leveled at each other, at the two candidates, uh, and we should just try to take it inside from an historical perspective. Well, some very interesting historical context. So thank you, Tom, for that and for sharing those tips as well. Very helpful. Tom, thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients here on top of the morning to talk about the Election Watch publication series for the 2024 election cycle. Many more conversations ahead of us. So do look forward to that. Although, Tom, thank you again for your time today. Always a pleasure, Dan. Today, we have been joined by Tom McLaughlin, head of fixed income for the Americas with the UBS chief investment office. I will point our listeners, our clients to the Internet site, UBS.com slash Election Watch, where you can locate all resources as it relates to the Election Watch publication series for 2024. Again, that's UBS.com slash Election Watch. From UBS Studios, I'm Van Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.